Amen. Sometimes on Sunday when we worship, you just want to, maybe we should just keep worshiping. (laughs) Just keep going because it's such a good time of being in the presence of the Lord. But we want to jump into the scriptures. Here we are in the third week of Advent. You can open up your Bibles to Matthew 3. We will have it on the screen and it's in your bulletin as well uh, for any visitors. And there's a Bible uh, in the pew as well. But we're getting really close to Christmas. Actually, next Sunday is Christmas Sunday. Uh, We typically call the fourth week of Advent Christmas Sunday around here, but it kind of uh, is a little strange this year because Christmas falls on a Sunday. So that sounds confusing. So we'll call it the fourth week of Advent. Next next Sunday is the fourth week of Advent. That's when we do our big program. We have our kids come down. So we've got a bunch of kids upstairs right now. They're going to come down and they have a... um, they, they're going to do a presentation to us. I believe it's on the 12 days of Christmas, which we sang last night. Uh, and the choir has a presentation for us too next week. Next week's our, our big Christmas service. And remember, we are not having a Christmas Day service. So we're having Christmas Eve, Saturday at 6 o'clock. Bring your families, bring anyone, your neighbors and friends and co-workers. Invite them to come. It's a beautiful service. Usually a candlelight um, that we sing Silent Night is in the candlelight service on Christmas Eve. But Christmas Day... Stay home, relax, sleep in. Well, if you're you're little kids, they're not going to let you sleep in. But uh, for those who can sleep in, if you'd like to sleep in, feel free to do that. We've been going through in this uh, short Advent series, we've been looking at the early ministry, the early life of Jesus. Last week we started um, by looking at his testing, his temptation in the desert. And we're kind of going in reverse order. So we started with his temptation. That's really the, the kickoff of his ministry as he succeeds in being tested by the Lord, by the Spirit being sending him in there, and by being tempted by the devil. And today, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, and then, Lord willing, next week, looking at Jesus as he's 12 years old. Uh, this one little tiny snippet about Jesus as a child. And that's all we get, besides the baby. Uh, and then on Christmas Eve, we'll look, of course, at the birth of Christ itself. So that's where we're going. We're looking today at the baptism of Jesus. And uh, this is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. The baptism of Jesus is actually an extremely important event. It's a short event, a short passage of scripture. In fact, before the service, uh, Rich Haven said to me, how are you going to preach 40 minutes on this little tiny section of scripture, Rick? So uh, maybe I will, or maybe we're going to get out early today. We'll see. But I think there is a lot here uh, to say about the baptism of Jesus. There's more than meets the eye, the closer you look at it. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, why would Jesus get baptized? Baptism is a symbol of repentance, of your salvation, of being cleansed, a symbol of being cleansed from your sin. Why would Jesus, who's innocent and sinless, why would he need to undergo baptism? He does it as a sign that he comes as our Savior. Well, John the Baptist, John baptizes Jesus. And so we're going to look at those three things. We're going to look at John, we're going to look at baptism, we're going to look at Jesus. So, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. You can follow along with me if you'd like. We read these words. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, God's Son, is baptized as a sign that he is our Savior. In your bulletins, you can see a breakdown, an outline. Uh, first, we'll look at John and the call to follow his example of humility, verses 13 and 14. Then baptism, verse 15. We believe in the saving work of Jesus. And then, uh, looking at Jesus himself, listen to the witness of God in verses 16 and 17. So that's where we're going. Uh, first, look at uh, verses 13 to 14. Follow the example of John and his humility. Jesus comes out to John uh, to be baptized. This is John the Baptist. Uh, No, that's not his denomination. He's not a Baptist, like we're Baptists today. That's a description of what he did. I always think it's interesting when people go, you have John the Baptist Catholic Church here in Haverhill. So is it Catholic or is it Baptist? That's Catholic. (laughs) John the Baptist himself, uh, came well before Baptists uh, entered that termination, entered the world here. Uh, But this is different than the Apostle John. Uh, This is a guy who is really the forerunner to Jesus. He sets the stage. Kind of a, an interesting individual. He comes on the scene wearing a, a camel hair, a camel hair belt, sort of the, the, the garment of wild animals, and uh, he eats locusts and wild honey. I can go with the honey, but I'm not sure I want to try the locusts, right? Uh, interestingly enough, locusts are considered a clean animal to eat in the Old Testament. You're allowed to eat locusts. I just, I don't know if you'd want to, that's all, but he does. Uh, he eats locusts and wild honey, and his primary message to Israel is repent. Repent. You have fallen away from the Lord. You have moved too far away from Him. It's time to repent. It's time to turn around and come back to the Lord. That's His primary message. And to do so, He uses the symbol of baptism. Now, interestingly enough, John the Baptist did not create baptism. It actually existed uh, in Israel before him. And the way it was used is if you are a Gentile and you want to become part of Israel, you want to become Jewish, in a sense. What you had to do, part of that ceremony would be to become baptized as a sign of entry, a sign of your conversion coming to Israel. So think about how shocking this is. What John is saying to the people of Israel is, you are no longer even part of Israel because you've fallen so far from God. And I'm calling you to repent and symbolize that by converting back to Judaism, (laughs) to converting back to Israel. That's how strong his message of repentance is. And interestingly enough, crowds of people come to him. Roman soldiers come to him. Pharisees come to him in order to be baptized. They know, they recognize, or the Lord is tugging on them that they need to repent and return back to the people of God. But if that's what baptism is all about, and that's what his message is all about, you can imagine why he's shocked to see Jesus. (laughs) Why does he need to repent? Actually, interestingly enough, uh, there's no evidence that John and Jesus knew each other, except for we have one event in Scripture, maybe if you know the story. Uh, Mary was pregnant, and she visits Elizabeth, who is pregnant. John's a little bit older, so uh, she's further along in her pregnancy. And when Mary steps into the room, uh, what happens is the baby that's in Elizabeth's womb begins to leap for joy, or begins to move around in her stomach, because he recognizes the presence of Jesus <laughs> already, even as a preborn uh, infant there in his mother's womb. Well, here we are 30 years later or so, And what do we see? John still immediately recognizes the presence of Jesus when he sees him. And what does he say? I need to be baptized by you. (laughs) 
Well, you come to me to be baptized as a symbol of repentance and conversion? I'm the one who needs to convert. I'm the one who needs to repent, just standing in your very presence. Before we look at why Jesus is actually baptized, that's the next section. Let's look a little bit more at John, though. I think he's a great example to us of humility. He's constantly pointing people to Jesus. I think about what is he saying here. When I come in contact with you, Jesus... And I see your holiness, your innocence, your sinlessness. I'm deeply convicted of my own sin and my own need of conversion. My own. I'm baptizing people, but I need to be baptized as well. I need to return to Israel. Kind of like Isaiah, those of you who know your Old Testament, those of you who know your Bibles, what does Isaiah do when he has a vision of God? Woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, when he comes in contact with Jesus and he recognizes who Jesus is, what does he do? Go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. It's the same idea here John is saying. I'm not worthy to be even your presence. If I'm here in your presence, I need to be the one who needs to repent, not you. In fact, we see this all over John's ministry. What does he say? I'm not worthy to untie your shoes. I'm not worthy to do the work of a slave. In fact, when the crowd starts switching from going from John the Baptist, from going to Jesus, some of John's followers say, aren't you getting a little jealous here? Aren't you a little competitive, John? You're, you're starting to lose all your people. They're, they're all starting to follow Jesus now instead of you. What does John say? He must become greater and I become, must become less. Or he says, he's the bridegroom. <laughs> he's the groom at the great wedding party. I'm just a guest. <laughs> I'm happy. I want everyone to look at the groom. He's being united with his people, the bride, the bride of Christ, the people of God. Why would I be jealous? I'm excited that the groom is here and I get to play a part in pointing people to him. Now, there is a part later on when John does begin to doubt who Jesus is. He's in prison and he was expecting Jesus to come and immediately be in power and immediately change everything for Israel and for the world. Uh, but it doesn't happen right away and he begins to doubt. So he's a sinner like you and me, like every one of us. But overall, John's life points people to Jesus. Friends, this is what every great Christian leader, every good pastor, any preacher worth his salt should be doing. Pointing people to Jesus. Sadly, people miss the point that we have followers of John the Baptist uh, right into the book of Acts. So there are people well after the death and resurrection of Jesus and as the gospel begins to spread who are still following John the Baptist. <laughs> and John would say, that's not my point. I am no savior. You missed my point. My point was to be the forerunner to point the way to someone far greater than me. It says that he prepares the way for the Lord. When a king would visit a city, you would go and you remove any stones or rocks or shrubs or anything that's in the way, in the path to the city. Well, it says he's the forerunner of the coming of the Lord. So remove mountains and fill valleys to make the way straight because <laughs> he's the Lord. I'm just a forerunner to him. Friends, we do well, I think, to follow John's example. To look to Jesus. Look to him. He's wonderful. <laughs> he's amazing. He's good. Truly good. Just like those who were last night, I had to try to connect a, a ninja turtle to Jesus. Somehow, some way, right? Well, they're both good guys, but here's the ultimate good guy. He's the one who's always faithful, will never, ever turn on us. He is truly loving. He is gentle with us, far beyond what we deserve. He's the Savior. Friends, you and I, I'm no Savior. 
That's one thing I know for sure. I am no savior. My, uh, my grandmother, she passed away just not too long ago. She used to always call my, my parents and she'd say, I need you to pray for so-and-so. And tell Ricky to pray, too, because he has a direct line to God, because he's a pastor, right? <laughs> so I don't have a direct line. To, I'd be happy, I was happy to pray for whatever my grandmother asked, but I don't have a direct line to God, nor do you, any one of us. Well, we do have a direct line through Christ, but only through Christ. Right, any great preacher, Billy Graham is no savior. A great preacher, but no savior. Billy Graham said this, Make sure of your commitment to Jesus Christ and seek to follow him every day. Don't be swayed by the false values and goals of this world, but put Christ in his will first in everything you do. Martin Luther, for those who love their Reformation history, Martin Luther was no savior. He wanted to point everyone to the savior. In fact, today we have Lutherans. I love our Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to knock them in any way. But Luther said this, the first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine. Luther did not want that attention. No, I don't want followers of Luther. I want followers of Christ. John Calvin, the great John Calvin, made sure that he was buried in an anonymous grave, even today, so nobody knew where he was buried. No one would be tempted to turn it into an idol and begin to worship him in any way. Uh, The founder of our church, Hezekiah Smith. Anyone ever seen a picture of Hezekiah Smith? Good. I was wondering if anyone was going to raise their hand. I didn't want to embarrass you. But there's a reason for that. He made sure there were no portraits of him drawn. He didn't want that attention. He didn't want to be... I know we have pictures of pastors all over the walls here. Um, But our founder said, I don't want a picture. I don't want any portrait of me drawn because I don't want the focus to be on me. I'm pointing people to the Savior. Friends, that's what we're supposed to do. We as a church say, look to Jesus. Uh, we can't save anyone, but we can, we can tell you who can. <laughs> I can tell you who is absolutely able to save you from your sin, who is absolutely able to carry you into eternal life. I can point you to him, even if I can't do anything myself. Here's a very simple test. Whenever you watch something, whether it's on the History Channel about Jesus or something, or you listen to a sermon, or you read a Christian book, does it point you to Jesus? After reading that, after hearing that sermon, after watching that program, do you know Jesus more? Are you more focused on him, or does it turn you away from him into something else? Very simple test, right there. Uh, think of the book of Revelation, right? When so often you read these books on Revelation, and it focuses on all these little details and all these symbols and says it's really focused on this, uh, whatever, nuclear warfare here, and helicopters, and whatever, all these different uh, connections people make. That's not the point of Revelation. Here's a, very, here's a two-word summary of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. That's kind of the summary of the book of Revelation. Does it focus your attention more on the white rider who comes in victory in the end and brings, and wipes away every tear and makes all things new? That's really the question when you study the book of Revelation. When it comes to traditions, you think of our traditions, friends. Do they point you more to Jesus or away from Jesus? That's the key question, right? Traditions aren't necessarily bad. They aren't necessarily good. The question is, do they point us to Jesus? I was thinking, I heard a rumor, because, you know, rumors get out there, and I don't even know where this came from, but I heard a rumor that said that the elders want to get rid of communion. So, so I texted Pastor Mike. I said, Mike, did you hear this rumor? We're getting rid of communion in our church. I didn't know anything about this. Uh, but that, somehow that word got out there. Uh, that is completely not true, of course. But here's the thing, friends. Communion is Jesus' own words to point us to himself. 
his body broken and his blood shed. And we surround communion with all of our own little traditions, as we sometimes have to do, because you've got to do it in some way. You've got to choose a format and choose a way to do it. But all of those traditions are not what it's about. It's about focusing our attention on Jesus. Think about Christmas itself. Does it point you to Jesus? I don't mind. I love gift giving. I love gift receiving and all that. But does it help you celebrate the Lord? Is that the purpose? Is that the focus? John's example is to say, look to him. Look to him. He is worth it. He is worthy. He is the focus of our attention. Look over at Jesus. Verse 15. Baptism. Let's look a little bit of baptism. Uh, Verse 15. Jesus answers, let it be so now. So still the question remains for us. Why would Jesus actually go through baptism? He doesn't need to be baptized. He has no sin. He has no need of conversion. Well, this is his answer. He says, let it be so now. So in other words, permit it. At first, John said, I'm not going to permit that. He tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And uh, uh, Jesus says, let it happen. Let it be so. Uh, In other words, John, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, I'm not, I am sinless. I have no need for repentance. I have no reason to conversion. Uh, But go ahead and do this anyway. Let it be so now. Uh, And then he says, because it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And that phrase, you almost wish Jesus could explain that a little better. (laughs) That's a pretty general phrase. But what does it mean? It basically means uh, that uh, this is right. This is good. Undergoing, for me to undergo baptism is the right thing to do. That's just basically what it means to fulfill all righteousness. This is part of the plan of God. This is part of what's supposed to happen. I'm meant to be baptized. Go ahead, John, and go ahead and baptize me. You're not doing anything wrong in doing that. Let's go through the baptism. Here's what I think is the reason behind this baptism. You see, there's, there's different types of baptism in Scripture. As we said, John didn't create it, but there's John's baptism, John the Baptist. Uh, And he did it as a sign of repentance, as we said, a sign of coming back to Israel. And it was really meant only as a temporary statement. Uh, You shouldn't be baptized with John's baptism today. John is long since gone. He was making a statement in his day and in his time to say to Israel, you've fallen away from the Lord. Here's your opportunity to repent and demonstrate that. Show that by being baptized. That's John's baptism. Then we have Christian baptism. Uh, which is really a sign of our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So when we go under the waters, we are, in a sense, buried under the waters. The old self is dead, symbolizing the death to the old. And when we rise, we're risen to something new. We're risen to a new life in Christ. There's a story of a man who said he was going to be baptized, and he said to uh, his pastor, he said, so the idea here is that anything that goes under the water is the old me, and it's gone, right? And it, it doesn't, doesn't belong, it, uh, it was the old self, and it's gone. Anything that comes up out of the water, that belongs to the Lord. And the, Baptist, the pastor said, that sounds pretty good. So when he baptized the man, the man held up his, his wallet to make sure it didn't go under the water with him. So he could say, that doesn't belong to the Lord just yet. So that's not the point of baptism. We die to the old self. The whole of us goes under the water as a symbol of what is now dead and what is now alive. That's Christian baptism. So where does Jesus' baptism fit? As the bridge between the two. <laughs> as the bridge between the two. It's somewhere in between. Jesus' baptism is an example to all those around him. Yes, I am being baptized because in solidarity with all of you, I am human, and I'm going through this as an example that baptism is good. What John is calling us to do is good, but there's something more to it when Jesus is baptized. He does it as a sign of his upcoming death and resurrection. 
that he will be buried as we are buried. Not under the waters, but in the tomb. And he will rise again, not just from the waters, but from the grave. Uh, John MacArthur explains this in his own words. He says, fulfill all righteousness means this. One, it pictured his death and resurrection. That's what we're talking about. Number two, it therefore prefigured the significance of Christian baptism. Three, it marked his first public identification with those whose sins he would bear. His solidarity with us. And number four, it was a public affirmation of his messiahship by testimony directly from heaven. That's what we're going to look at in just a bit. See, if Jesus didn't get baptized, what would he really be saying? I'm holy, and you're not, and I therefore stand apart from you, all you people. I don't have that, that connection with you because you and I are so far apart. <laughs> but that's not what he does. He joins in with us as one of us. Because that's the type of Savior that we have, friends. Let's remember. Let's remember what kind of Savior we have here. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. Some people say, so that means he's 50% God and he's 50% man? Nope. (laughs) He's fully God and he's fully man. It's interesting that Jesus' life was so remarkable that the, the first heresy that surrounded Jesus was that he wasn't really man. Interestingly enough, you think that the first heresy would be that he wasn't really God, he was just a man. No, the first heresy was that he wasn't even a man at all, that he must have been God right from the beginning, which is wrong, though. He was fully human. He had organs, livers, heart, intestines, lungs, an esophagus, just like you and me. He had smells. Meaning he could smell things, although he, sure he smelled just like every other first person, first, a person in first century Israel as well. There's a book called Jesus with Dirty Feet, and that's the point of it, that he was like us. He had taste buds. I'm sure he had his favorite meal that his mother cooked. I'm sure there were other things that he ate that tasted like cottage cheese tastes to me, right? That's just, just not something you don't like. He got haircuts. He was fully human. One writer writes in Desiring God's website here, David Mathis, in an article called How God Became Man. The man Christ Jesus did not simply emerge from the wilderness preaching the kingdom. He learned to latch and crawl, to walk and talk. He scraped his knees. Perhaps he broke a finger or wrist. He fought off the common cold, suffered through sick days, and navigated his way in the awkwardness of adolescence. He learned social graces and worked as a common laborer in relative obscurity more than half his earthly life. Jesus was fully human, just like you and me. He's our brother. I used to not like that term, to refer to Jesus as our brother. What's the great ode to joy, Christ our brother, God our father, Christ our brother. But actually, that's very biblical. (laughs) He is our brother, fully in the flesh, fully human like you and I. Jesus got hungry. We saw that last week in the temptation narrative there. Jesus wept while attending the funeral of a friend. People say, well, how, how come Jesus wept if he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in, in a few moments? Because Jesus can't escape being in the moment like you and me. That If you attend a funeral and you're surrounded by people who are crying and weeping and Hurting with grief, you weep if you're human. Unless you're just cold-hearted. Jesus used humor. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot, some people don't believe he used humor. G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, 
theologians said the one thing we don't find uh, with Jesus is humor. Actually, I don't think that's true. Uh, you do find humor in his life. Now, maybe it's not quite the humor that we use today, uh, but Jesus did, did use humor. One I like to use, I use this in Nepal too. Uh, I got a problem with this here. So, Jesus told the story of the, you guys know the story of uh, the man with the log in his eye? And Jesus said, you know, it's about hypocritical judging. He said, there's a man with a log in his eye. And and he says, first remove the log before you try to take a speck out of somebody else's eye. So I think I saw Mark Driscoll do this. Imagine having this. This isn't even a log. It's just sort of stuck in my eye. And I'm sitting there trying to remove a speck from somebody else's eye. I'm just sort of whacking him in the face all along as I'm trying to get this thing out of his his eye. It's not going to work. It's meant to be a little bit humorous. Jesus knew that. He was human like you and me. He felt the sting of betrayal, like you and I would feel. He felt fear. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced death in all of its morbidness, just like you and me. He was human, fully human. And as a fully human person, he was baptized in solidarity with us. Why did God do this? Why did he send his son into this world to be fully human? To save us. To do what we could not do. And only he could do. Friends, I know as Christians you've heard this probably so many times. It's uh, every Christmas you hear it and, and, and even beyond that. Think about this. Let this sink in that we have a Savior. We have a God who comes to us. I find it helpful to, to think of Christianity in comparison to other religions. And, and, and how much this really sticks out. And I do this in respect to, all the, to other religions. But think about it, friends. We tend to take this for granted. Uh, Buddhism, for example, believes that this physical world that we live in is basically unimportant, ultimately. And again, it's not a knock on Buddhists. That's what they would say. Uh, uh, Paul and I spent some time with my son in a Tibetan refugee. We got to talk to a, a Buddhist monk and uh, just get his perspective on all these things. And this is exactly what he said. He said, detachment is the ultimate goal of Buddhism. We want to be detached from this physical world as much as possible and detached from people and relationships and everything until you come to a point in which you basically feel nothing but contentment for whatever it is. That's kind of the goal of Buddhism. Islam, we just had a, a, a missionary uh, to Afghanistan, spent most, many, many years in Afghanistan in our perspectives class, talk about this. And uh, Islam believes that Allah is so far and above us that he doesn't actually follow any line of morality. Uh, so basically, uh, our sense of right and wrong is, can be totally different than his. And it's basically fatalistic. Whatever happens is the will of Allah, period. No questions asked. Don't do anything about it. Somebody, uh, he used a specific example of somebody struggling with their eyesight. And he said, uh, one Muslim said, don't do anything to fix his eyes. If you do, you are going against the will of Allah. He is different. He is so far and beyond us. He works his will regardless of our sense of right and wrong. Atheism believes that we live in a purely natural world. That the death, that death is the final end. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can try to fix the world by ourselves. We don't have any help from on high on that. We can try to fix the world to what we think is a better world, although we define better by our own decision. There's no actual standard that tells us what's better. But this world is all there is to it. As Christians, we believe that God created this world. And though it's fallen into sin, God enters it himself, becomes like us, near us, to save us. And restore this world. Friends, what a beautiful, 
narrative of what this life really is all about, according to the Christian faith. This world is not something we detach ourselves from. God is not so far that we can't know him or know his will or even know him personally. And death is not the end. There is a resurrection to come. That's the Christian faith. And it's wrapped up right there in Christmas and right here in his baptism as Jesus unites with us and also prefigures his own death and resurrection. Faith in Jesus as Savior is what redeems us. I just want to encourage you. I don't know if you know him personally. I don't always want to assume that on a Sunday. I know we have people who come and they have all different beliefs. Maybe uh, you don't know the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're still figuring things out. Maybe you have a radically different view than what I just described. Maybe you ascribe to one of those other three views that I said. I just want you to know that according to the scriptures, you can know God. You can know him personally. You can know him intimately. You can know him as a brother who knows everything that you've gone through and understands all the emotions and grief and struggle and joys and everything that we experience. You can know him because he sent Jesus to us. Pray to him. Begin a relationship with him. Begin to speak with him. But most importantly, trust in his saving work for us on the cross. Then we come to Jesus. John, baptism, Jesus. Look at uh, verses 16 and 17. Listen to the witness of God. Listen to the witness of God. When Jesus was baptized, so as he comes up out from the water, after he symbolizes his death, in a sense, and his upcoming resurrection, what happens? Uh, We see here that uh, the heavens open, uh, and that could just mean that the skies open, cleared. So in a very natural way, you could say, all that happened is the clouds uh, cleared from the sky and the sun shone. Or there may be perhaps something supernatural meant here. Literally, the, the heavens, meaning where God dwells, is open. Uh, Jesus comes up from the water and it says, The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. So in the appearance of a dove. Why a dove? Think of the story of Noah. A dove is what symbolizes peace. <laughs> Shalom, the fullness of God's peace. And here, peace descends Literally, or in, a, in an actual uh, dove, or an image of a dove at least, and rests upon Jesus himself. And then a voice speaks from heaven. And some people say, well, what language does God speak, right? Well, uh, God speaks whatever language people understand. <laughs> so most likely he spoke Aramaic because people there would only understand Aramaic. It's an old, this is a little side story. It's an old uh, joke about two people who are arguing about what's the language of heaven. Uh, one person says uh, the language of heaven is clearly Hebrew. If you read the Old Testament, you know that it's going to be Hebrew. It's, uh, it's the language of the Bible. And the other person says, no, the language of heaven is going to be French. Because of all the languages in the world, French is the most beautiful language. And God's not going to choose something less than the most beautiful language. And as they're driving along and they're having this debate, all of a sudden they get into a car accident. Both of them die, and as they're approaching heaven, the doors of heaven open, and they hear Peter say, Buenos dias, senores. So, but we have no idea of what the language of heaven is, except for this, that God always speaks to us in a way that we can understand. <laughs> and, what we, and so most likely he speaks here in Aramaic and says, This is my beloved son. And I like the way the message puts it here. The delight of my life. The one I, I am well pleased in. If you notice that the whole Trinity is in display here. The Father is speaking. The Son is being baptized. And the Spirit is descending. All of them testifying. All of them witnessing the same thing. That what Jesus is doing here in our world is big. (laughs) This is central. This is crucial to my whole purpose for this world. This is huge. 
I'm doing a work of salvation that you must pay attention to. You know, it's interesting the way the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to one another. We only get a few glimpses of this in Scripture. You know, one thing people say is, how can God be humble? Right? I mean, God, if God is the greatest and He's the pinnacle of all that is, uh, He created the world, how can He Himself be humble? For Him to point to anything other than Himself would be, uh, would be idolatry, ultimately. Well, this is how God models humility to us. The Father points to the Son and says, look at Him. He's the delight of my life. And the son points to the father and says, look to God, how glorious he is. And the spirit points to the son, the spirit points to the father, and they're constantly pointing to one another, modeling to us what it means to be unselfish, to be humble. But friends, this is God the son in our world. What a reaffirmation of of Christmas to us. God the Son in our world. Now, there's a lot of responses to Christmas. We've been hinting at this, talking about this in the last couple of weeks here. Uh, but I know Christmas is, is an interesting thing. You can talk to one person and Christmas has, means one thing or it brings up a certain type of emotion to them. You can talk to somebody else and Christmas brings up a whole different set of emotions. But here's the thing. I think that, that Jesus really addresses all of our emotions. Uh, one, some people look at Christmas and they are happy. <laughs> Tis the season to be jolly, right? This is, it's, this is good. We're, we're going to be, we're going to celebrate this big time. That's generally my reaction to Christmas. And that was certainly the spirit of last night at the Christmas uh, party. That is completely fitting. We have a Savior who has come to us. We get to celebrate him. We should be joyful about this holiday. We should be joyful about what we're focusing on. And not just once a year. Here's the beauty for you. If you like celebrating Christmas, as a Christian, celebrate all year round. (laughs) Because Jesus entered our world, not just uh, something that we can recognize on December 25th, but all year round. God is part of our world in Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing to celebrate. For others, uh, Christmas brings up grief over lost loved ones. That missing seat at the table come Christmas. Be comforted in knowing that because Jesus has come, even in his very birth, and as we're seeing here in his baptism, he symbolizes his upcoming death and resurrection. (laughs) That life, this life, is not the only thing that we have. And Christmas should be a good reminder to you that you will meet your loved one in the Lord once again. Be comforted in Christmas, knowing that God has provided a means of salvation. Maybe Christmas brings up to you an inadequacy. That's because the holiday has been so commercialized, right? I tell my wife, I say, let's say you spend $500 and everybody else for for gifts this this, uh, Christmas. And in a perfect world, everybody you buy a gift for gives you a gift and you get $500 worth of gifts. I'm just choosing a number. In the end, you'd have as much you, as much as you spent on others, you'd have right from the beginning. You could have just bought whatever you wanted, right? So who makes out? The stores make out in the end. That's kind of my Scrooge view of, uh, of Christmas there. Maybe you feel like, I just don't have the money this year. I, finances are tough. It's just this Christmas just isn't going to be what it should be. Remember that our Savior came in a manger. In a stable or perhaps in a cave. He came with nothing and he came to rescue us because we are inadequate and because we need his grace. Focus your attention on what Christmas is really all about. A savior came and gave up everything to come to us, to redeem us. 
Or maybe Christmas brings up nostalgia to you. This, little, this one's a little different. This one is true of me. Uh, Christmas just comes and goes so fast. Now, before you know it, it's going to be December 26th. Before you know it, it's going to be here. And you can't slow time. My kids are growing up so fast. Before you know it, they're going to be in college. And then, there you go. Keep in mind that in Christ, because of Christmas, because of what God has done, as we see it right here in this baptism, we live on an eternal scale in which life has no end because in Christ our sins are forgiven and eternal life is his gift to us. We weren't meant to live a mere 80, 90, 100 years. We were meant to live eternally in relationship with one another and with our creator. And God has made that possible through the gift of his son. Friends, Jesus, God's son, is baptized as a sign that he is our savior. Follow John's example. Believe in the saving work of Jesus. Look to him. Jesus starts off his public ministry with a baptism, which, as I said, symbolizes his very upcoming death and resurrection. Interestingly enough, he starts off his birth in a similar way. We had a bunch of uh, uh, trivia questions last night. And those are really hard, by the way, Donna. Those are tough. Those are not easy questions. Even some of those, I'm saying to, I talked to, saying to Pastor Mike, I don't really know the answer to this question, actually. So uh, one table had, uh, had, had Reverend Paul Miller over there and one, one for everyone. So you guys cheated. Mike and I didn't join a group. You did. So that was... Uh... But one of the questions talked about the Magi and said the three, you know, the, the three kings they visited. The interesting thing about that, of course, is that there, there were neither three nor were they kings, right? That's the thing. We, we love the song, We Three Kings, uh, but uh, they weren't kings. They were magi. They were probably uh, astrologers uh, from the east. And nowhere does it says there are three, except for the fact that they brought three gifts. But one of the gifts, as we talked about last night, was the gift of myrrh. What a strange gift to give a baby. <laughs> myrrh, if you remember the answer, is the ointment for the dead. So right there in his very birth, to be human means to someday die. Just like the song says, we three kings, myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume, breeze of life, of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Jesus, in his first public ministry, symbolizes his burial for us. Friends, he's in our world. He's our brother. He's one of us, born and baptized, just like you and me. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the celebration of Christmas. Thank you for what it points us to. Just like the, actually John the Baptist, Lord, it points us to Jesus. And Lord, what a great reminder we need that the Lord Jesus entered our world as a helpless babe and grew into a man who gave his life for us. And Father, that's not something that we need to leave sad about because we know he rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. He paid our price so that we could know you personally and know you for all eternity. 
Father, I do pray again uh, for anyone here who maybe doesn't know you, Lord. Help them to know that you are reaching out to them even now. Uh, as it says in the scriptures, Lord, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. That you want to know them. You want a relationship with them. You want to know them intimately. You created them for this very purpose and reason. And Lord, let it be a reminder to all those here who do follow Christ. That we have such a great Savior. That he is worth celebrating. Yes, at this time of year, yes, on Christmas, but Lord, all year round. Fill our hearts with worship. Fill our hearts with the joy of the Lord. Fill our hearts with gratitude until the day that Christ returns for his people and then for all eternity afterwards. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.